0: Turn together in our Bibles to Titus. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter three verses three to eight this morning, and we have before us one of the most outstanding passages in the entire Bible with regard to salvation. So, if you're wondering how to get to heaven or how to share with someone else how to get to heaven, it's so clear before us, and especially. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 that we're going to read in just a moment. These are classic verses. These are verses that all Christians should know and should be prepared to share with others. So listen and follow along as I read from Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. There is a gripping before-after picture of the unbeliever and the believer and how the one becomes the other in this passage that is before us. I want us to see this morning the great contrast between the before and the after. A huge contrast. When Christ comes into a life, that life is totally changed, and so we're thinking about change and changed lives here this morning. The contrast is starker than if you were demonstrating the relative merits of a hair restoration elixir. You see pictured on the screen a bottle that's called Hair Omega, and if you can read the fine print, it tells you some very good things that it claims for it can even uh, put hair on a bowling ball i mean it's it's good but how do you demonstrate the before and the after of a hair elixir well if you took a man with a totally bald head any volunteers would like to come up front here and okay no volunteers how about mr clean Mr. Clean is about as bald as you can get. Picture him, and picture him as the before when you're trying to sell this hair elixir. He's the before. And what's going to happen afterwards? Well, maybe I could show a picture of Brad Pitt in his early days, or Samson, or how about Mr. Clean himself? After. People would look at that and say, I I want some of that. I want some of that hair elixir. I want some of that was in that bottle a little while ago because I, I'd like to have a full hair, a full head of hair, a full hair for some would suffice too. But we've got this whole idea of the before and the after, and we have the same thing in the Scripture that we just read. We've got those apart from the Lord Jesus Christ described in gruesome terms. And that's what the Apostle Paul says all of us were at this, at one time. Maybe not to the extent that others have, but give us time all of us would have apart from Christ. All of us are depraved. All of us would get worse and worse and worse. And maybe if you were saved as a four-year-old or a five-year-old, you never knocked off a bank, you never mugged anybody, but given time, there are evil things in every one of us that would surface, and that's the point that is constantly being made in the Scriptures. That's the way we were, and particularly verse 3 is going to tell us about that. But something happened. What happened? What happened was God's goodness and loving kindness. What did God's goodness and loving kindness do for us? And what it did was it brought about a change, a huge change. We can see it in verse 3. Because it saved us from the way we were. And here's the way we were. Here's the before picture, if you will. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once. That means we're not there anymore. He's talking to believers. You can see in the immediate context before and even during this. We ourselves were once, and then this string of all these negatives. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating One another. It's not a pretty picture. We ourselves were once there and headed further apart from God. Foolish. Sometimes we think foolish. Okay. That's not such a bad thing. Somebody's silly. Somebody doesn't think through things. But foolish here means not understanding. In fact, it's a complete lack of understanding. It's to be ignorant and uninformed or Clueless. It is not a good state of being to be foolish. Not only foolish, but disobedient. You can see in the um, on the screen. If you can see the screen, the Greek word that is there, apatheia. The a before a word often means not. It negates a good quality by saying it's not going to be that. So, uh, what we have here, the A standing for the negative and patho from which the word comes to persuade. So it's not persuadable. It denotes somebody who's obstinate, who obstinately rejects the will of God as it has been revealed to us. It's somebody then who is disobedient. Same word is used in Titus chapter 1 verse 16 when it is describing some people in a terrible way. And part of that description is the same word of being disobedient. It's defiant unteachableness. We're two words into a long string right now, but we see somebody already who is foolish and disobedient. Somebody who is obstinately saying to God, no, thank you. I don't want what it is that you're selling. Someone who is led astray once, that's the way believers were, before a change came about. So led astray, it means to roam, it means to roam from safety or truth or virtue. It's to be deceived, it's to err, it's to be seduced, to wander, to go away from the right way of being goes on to say slaves to various passions. It's a longing, especially for what is forbidden. It's something that I know is wrong, but I want it. It feels good. It looks good. There are people that I know who tell me that it is good. I know that it's wrong, but it's okay. It is very, very seductive, and I'm being led astray as a result of that, and I'm going to be a slave to this particular passion. It's the opposite of self-control. So, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, and not only that, slaves to pleasures. It is a word we're familiar with, hedone, or pleasure. We get our word hedonism from it. It is pleasure-seeking. So we get the idea here as we're putting all of these things together. Here is a person who lives entirely for himself or herself, defying God, unteachable, obstinate, foolish, clueless. Put all of these things together, and it continues on. Passing our days in malice, it says. Malice is a simple word. It simply means badness. It's depravity, malignity trouble. This is a picture of a person before that is ugly. Passing our days in envy as well. It's a feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing of the advantage or prosperity of others. I don't like it because you're having something good happen to you. It's not happening to me. Therefore, I'm unhappy about that, and I'm unhappy about you. Why do you get that and I don't? Hated by others and hating one another. The opposite of they will know that we are his disciples by the love we have for one another. We understand from the scriptures that hate is murder in seed form in our hearts. And it's also a natural byproduct of envy. These things feed each other. Not a pretty picture. Nor was it a pretty picture in the lives of the Corinthians when Paul wrote to them. But it's something that can become beautiful. But notice this contrast in 1 Corinthians. And if you will turn to 1 Corinthians 6 or if you'd like to read it on the screen, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. I have verse 11 on the screen. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 9. You'll see the same contrast that we see in Titus. Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now here's the point that's going to sound very familiar, I trust. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified or made holy or separate or set apart. You were justified, just as if you'd never sinned. You were declared innocent. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I said earlier we're going to see a lot of before and after this morning. And here it is again. This is the way some of you were. Such were some of you. But there's always that conjunction that shows up. But here's what happened when a change came into your life. Same thing in Corinthians here. When we remember our own pasts, should be a powerful motive for our own attitude toward those who are still apart from Christ. Our attitude should change toward those people. Because there but for the grace and mercy and the goodness and the loving kindness of God, we would still be. And so as we look at a world around us that we can't say such were some of you, we would have to say such are some of you. Our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, everything that we stand for should be working with them so that they can put this in the past tense too so they can have an after, not just a before experience, because that's what God's doing for us. He's taking us from that before picture to the after picture as well. I'm going to put a quote on the screen. might surprise you that this quote is from a singer. It's from Stephen Curtis Chapman and his pastor, Scotty Smith. In the gospel, we discover we are far worse off than we thought and far more loved than we ever dreamed that's what the gospel is first of all the gospel convinces us that we are sinners separated from God all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God we are described like Paul describes sinners in Titus and in 1 Corinthians that's where we were but We're far more loved than we ever dreamed because of the grace of God that gives us everything we don't deserve. And that's what this passage in Titus is also all about. How does the change come about? How do we get from before to after? Well, there's a change agent, and the change comes in verse 4. Notice the first word in verse 4. It's that conjunction again. It's the conjunction, but... The whole scene shifts here. The but is the transition from the before to the after. And here's the change agent. The change agent is the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. That appeared. And when that appeared, then the possibility for change is there. The NIV calls this the kindness and love of God, our Savior. So the goodness and loving kindness, the kindness and love, no matter how you look at it, the kindness and love of God pervades, comes into our world. It appeared, and I maintain that that appearance came when Jesus came because that made possible with his death on the cross all of these nice things that that we're seeing. We're completely changed because of God's kindness, because of his love, because of his mercy. As we read further in Titus, his washing of regeneration, his renewing by the Holy Spirit. God poured his Holy Spirit out richly through his Son, the Lord Jesus, and God's grace, all of these things working together as part of the change agent. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. What is goodness? It refers to God's innate goodness, his desire to give generously. That's what God does, because that's what love does. God so loved the world that he gave. Love is always giving, and that's what God did for us as well. Loving kindness, philanthropia, is the Greek word. Is here we know this word, philanthropia. Philanthropist we get from that philanthropy. It's made up of two words, as many of these words are. One of them is phileo, and we know that word. Phileo, having affection for, and anthropos, which is man or mankind. So it's fine, fondness or affection for mankind. It's benevolence. You could even say it's philanthropy. It's doing what is good for other people. So the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And when that appeared, It was a whole new ballgame. There was a huge, huge contrast at that particular point. And that's what we as Christians can rejoice in as we look to that. We look to the change agent, which is really Jesus himself. When he appeared, everything was different. How did the change appear? What did it look like? How did it come about? Titus 3.5, I mentioned verses 4 and 5 as classic verses for salvation that every believer should know. By the time we get to Titus 3.5, it tells us, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. And that's why verse 3 that we read is so important That verse doesn't list a bunch of righteous things, but the exact opposite. That's why grace is so necessary. We've been singing about it this morning. It's God giving us what we don't deserve. And here in the context, we see grace and we also see mercy. Mercy is immediately before us. Grace appears in verse 7. Mercy God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace, he lavishes things on us that we don't deserve. Mercy, he withholds from us the things that we do deserve. Grace and mercy often travel together in the Scriptures. And we're seeing God keeps giving and giving and giving, and at the same time, he's not giving and not giving what we do deserve. That's what grace is, and that's what mercy is. And God is both, and both of them are operative here before us. We are completely changed because of God's kindness and all of those attributes that we've mentioned. And so the change appeared. The change appeared with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's all involving grace and mercy. And verse five, once again, if you take a look at verse five, it exposes that whole salvation by works lie that Satan has been promulgating since the gospel was first made available to human beings. That whole salvation by works, that whole idea that somehow, some way, we can do something or anything to impress God enough that he'll let us go to heaven. You know that, having come to Alden Union Church. If you've been here more than one week, you've probably heard this spoken at least once or twice or maybe ten times a Sunday. Salvation is by Faith in Christ by grace alone. But our world today doesn't say that. Um, let, me, uh, let me share with you. Let me go back because for some reason I lost my picture of Muhammad Ali. Um, you're going to have to imagine he's there. I don't know where he went. He's, he's being obstinate with me. In a Reader's Digest interview, here's what Muhammad Ali stated one time. And I I mention this because this is so typical of a view that the world holds with regard to salvation. He says, one day we're all going to die. And that's unfortunately going to be the last true thing that he's going to say here. One day we're all going to die and God is going to judge us, our good deeds and bad deeds... If the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. That is a view that is espoused by many, many, many people. Aren't you glad that's not the gospel? How do you weigh it? How do you know ever any assurance that I'm going to go to heaven What weight does God attach to this particular good deed or this particular sin? Is it sheer number, or are they weighted, or how is it going to work out? But that's not the gospel at all. Now, Sophia Loren came. I don't know why she came and Muhammad Ali didn't. Some of you may recall her as an actress in a bygone era, but she lasted for a long time and appeared um, not too terribly long ago. She says this, I am not a practicant. Uh, practicant is a word that means a practitioner. In this case she's saying I don't go to church. I don't practice religion really. She says, I'm not a practicant, but I pray. I read the Bible. It's the most beautiful book ever written. I should go to heaven, otherwise it's not nice. I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is very clean. My soul is as white as those orchids over there, and I should go straight, straight to heaven. That's not the gospel. Do you know what? I'd love to be able to stay here and tell you that's what it is. <laughs> that That's what it is, and you're all going to heaven. Uh, it's a beautiful thing you deserve to. All of you are perfect. None of you have sinned, uh, but I can't tell you that. Uh, A lot of people do, and they become very popular. They make a lot of money on television, but that's not the gospel. During an interview before his 50th college reunion, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg confessed that his mortality has started dawning on him. So at age 72, he began to think in terms of the fact that he was not going to live forever. He's now 75. This month, his net worth is $46.5 billion. He's the sixth richest person in the United States, the eighth richest person in the world. He's a philanthropist. He gives some of that money away, and I think he could give a whole lot of that away, and it shouldn't affect his daily life a whole lot. But he has said this, and not only is he um, concerned that his mortality has started dawning on him, he also said that he's been sobered by how many of his former classmates have passed away. But the author of an interview concluded, but if Bloomberg senses that he may not have as much time left as he would like, he has little doubt about what would await him at a judgment day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity... And smoking cessation, he said with a grin, I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. He's in for a rude, rude awakening. And he's going to take $46.5 billion dollars and leave it to something here, but he's not taking that with him wherever he goes. There's an old tale that speaks of a man who died and faced the angel Gabriel at heaven's gates. Obviously, this is just a story, but in the story, Gabriel wants to teach this man a lesson, and it's a lesson all of us would do well to know. The angel said, here's how this works. You need a hundred points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you have done, and I will give a certain number of points for each of them. The more good there is in the work that you cite, the more points you will get for it. When you get to a hundred points, you get in. Okay, the man said, I was married to the same woman for 50 years and never cheated on her, even in my heart. Gabriel replied, That's wonderful. That's worth three points. Three points, said the man incredulously. "'Well, I attended church all my life and supported its ministry with my money and service.' "'Terrific,' said Gabriel. "'That's certainly worth a point.' "'One point?' said the man with his eyes beginning to show a little bit of panic. "'Well, how about this? "'I opened a shelter for the homeless in my city and fed needy people by the hundreds during holidays.' "'Fantastic! That's good for two more points,' said the angel." Two points, cried the man in desperation. At this rate, the only way I will get to heaven is by the grace of God. Come on in, said Gabriel. All have sinned and, what's it say after that? Fallen short of the glory of God. And in reality, it's more than a 100 points. It's millions of points we all are incredibly short of the glory of God and that's the point that is being made here over and over again I'd like to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 Ephesians chapter 2 very similar almost a parallel passage to Titus chapter 3 where we are Titus chapter 2 I want to put verses 8 and 9 in their proper context It's the same context of the before and the after and the change agent. Ephesians chapter two, verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Some of these same words we've seen over and over again. We've seen them in that list in Titus chapter three, among whom we all once lived, and here's some more words, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but, and there's that conjunction again, but, God, being rich in mercy, now mercy and grace travel around a lot, so we're going to see grace before long, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then these two very famous verses that along with Titus 3, 4, and 5, every believer should know, every believer should be able to share with others about this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I've said this over and over again. If you've been at Alden Union Church any length of time, you've heard me say this, that in these two verses, there are a certain number of expressions that tell us that salvation is strictly from God and nothing that we can do. How many times does it say it in those two verses? Does anybody know? How many times are we told by the phrases that are there that salvation is God's, not of ours? Anybody want to venture a guess? I heard six. I find five, and we'll look for the sixth one. If you can see the screen, you'll see the highlighted words. Right, like grace. You've been saved. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. It's a gift. It is nothing that we can do. It's unmerited favor. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. You know all about grace. For by grace you've been saved, here's the second way, through faith. Faith is not us doing anything. It's believing in the one who did it all. It is believing what God says. And this, thirdly, not your own doing. Please understand that. Not your own doing. And then fourthly, it's the gift of God. You don't earn gifts. Gifts are given. And then fifthly, not a result of works. Five times in two verses, grace through faith, not your own doing, gift of God, not a result of works. While attending Moody Graduate School in Chicago, someone is telling this story. He says, campus housing was not available for my wife and me. So we ended up renting an apartment right around the corner on fashionable Oak Street. One morning I noticed Shoe, spelled S-H-O-O, the local shine man. Like a barker at a carnival, he would offer to shine the shoes for a donation of bustling passersby during the early morning rush. On that particular day, however, a stretch limo pulled up in front of Shu, and out of the vehicle stepped a gentleman who was dressed like a cover model for GQ magazine. Rather than asking for a shoe shine, he sat Shu down and polished his scuffed and tattered shoes. When finished, he handed Shu a tip, a $100 bill, and then returned to his waiting vehicle, never saying a word. When I returned home that evening, my wife asked how my day at school had gone. I explained that on my way to class to learn about Jesus, I saw someone who acted a whole lot like Jesus. To this day, I cannot remember what I learned in my theology classes that particular day, but it is hard to forget the lesson I learned at the corner of Oak and Rush from Shu and the man who acted like Jesus. He saved us, Titus 3.5. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And He made us a lot cleaner than shoes that have just been polished. When it says He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, that's no reference to water baptism saving us. It can't mean that. Or it would contradict what was said in verse 5 when it says He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So that doesn't mean anything having to do with water baptism. It is something spiritually that takes place that God the Holy Spirit does when we become saved. Remember what 1 Corinthians 6.11 said earlier? And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now, why was that done? You look down at the text again at Titus 3, 7, so that being justified, just as if we'd never sinned, completely declared not guilty, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that is part of the after picture The before picture is in verse 3. The after picture is all over the place. But if you go back to chapter 2 and verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, just to say no to all of that and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we're waiting for the blessed hope of the appearing of the Lord Jesus because he's going to appear again another time. He appeared once, and he brought with him all these great things to help change come about in our lives. I want to share one more story. Some of you are familiar with Dennis DeHaan, the devotional writer. This is not Dennis DeHaan pictured here, but pictured here as a before and an after of a man by the name of Isidore Zimmerman. Isidore Zimmerman served 25 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. You can see the picture of him as a younger man and then what he was like 25 years later. Because of false testimony at his trial, he was convicted of killing a New York policeman. In time, however, his innocence was proven, and in 1962 he was released. But did he live happily ever after? No, he didn't. Even though he had been innocent all along, Zimmerman couldn't escape the stigma of being an ex-convict. What few jobs he could get soon ended when employers learned that he had served time. His record was cleared, but society did not fully accept him. It's a striking contrast to our standing with God when we trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior. We are guilty. He wasn't, but we are guilty. Yet on the merits of Jesus' sinless life and atoning sacrifice, we are not only declared righteous, but we are fully restored to favor with our Heavenly Father. He treats us as if we had never broken His law, reconciling us to Himself and adopting us even into His very family. That's full acceptance. It's absolutely amazing that through faith and on the merits of Jesus' death, guilty sinners can be declared righteous by God. It's even more astounding that he would restore us to his favor and want us to work for him. He's enlisted us to be part of his great army, to work for him. But then that's what salvation is all about. One final point, and that is this, the change is important. Why do I say that? Why do I say the change is important? If you look at the last verse that we, that we read in verse 8, Titus was told that what had been said was trustworthy. What had been said encompasses the whole book, but particularly in the immediate context, verses 4 through 7, that idea of salvation, that when God's grace appeared, what he gave to us in salvation. So this change is important. Why do we say that? Because Titus was told it was trustworthy what he was teaching. It was trustworthy. You can believe that. You can take that to the bank. So it was trustworthy. Not only that, he was told to insist on these things. Why insist on them? Really, can you think of anything more important than what we've just read, particularly in verses 4 and 5? The way of salvation, the way to get to heaven. Is there anything more important? That's why Titus is to insist on it. And then it says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, to devote themselves to good works. You say, wait a minute, we just heard about good works. Good works doesn't save anybody. Why are people having to devote themselves to good works now all of a sudden? This is on the other side of salvation. This is not good works trying to save us. This is good works." because that's what believers in Christ do. In gratitude to him, empowered by the Holy Spirit, God gave us a great privilege so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Remember in chapter 2, verse 14, it talked about good works. We're supposed to be zealous for good works. This is the after part of the picture, not the before. After the grace of God saves us, Chapter 3, verse 1, we're supposed to be ready for every good work. Later on in verse 14 in chapter 3, the Christians are called to devote themselves to good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read earlier, by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves the gift of God, not of works. Not of works, it says, so that no one could boast. But you know what? There's a verse after that, Ephesians two ten. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where is workmanship. People see us and they say, that's what God did. Look what God made. And what are they seeing? Hopefully they're seeing good works. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why else do we say this is important? Because it concludes by saying these things are excellent and profitable for people. So we've got a before and an after. We've got a before saying you can't work your way to God, but his grace can give you all that you need. We've got an after that says on the basis of that grace of God and that free gift that he's given, now we can respond with those good works, and that's the way that it should be. Where is workmanship? Can you imagine that? We're on display. We're on display. It would be as if God were some type of artisan who had made things and bring people into the store and say, look, I made this and this and this. This is a sample of who I am and what I do. That's what God does with us. Let's ask him to help us when we talk about before and after. After we're saved, not to drift back into what we look like Before. Heavenly Father, for your glory, we let your light shine in us so that people may see our good works and they'll glorify you in heaven. That's our goal. Help us to that end. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.